0: we're back generations talking about my sports generations as always I am Jonathan
1: and I'm Steve hello everybody
0: and before we get started as always please like subscribe and share we are proud and we are also very thankful to say that we now have listeners in six different countries we have The United Kingdom, we have France, Belgium, Japan, Canada, and Andorra. So for those of you listening outside of the United States, thank you so much. And we are finding that we're getting a lot of positive feedback. So please interact with our polls and you can also send us feedback through the same mechanism. We are on Spotify, we are on Apple and we are on Amazon. So thank you so much. And we have, we will be announcing, basically we've got two different dates for our listener appreciation party. So if you make your way to Ventura for those two dates, it will be in January. And to let the cat out of the bag, it's gonna be the 13th or the 20th. We will have the specifics for that very soon and we will be announcing it and we apologize for not being able to pull this off in December but I'm sure like many of you December has gone quite upside down and it's just coming very quickly but again thank you so much for all of you but we've got a topic today that was actually born out of last week's podcast and as always Mr. Lipson give everybody the rundown Okay, I will.
1: And before I do the rundown, I wanted to kind of piggyback on what Jonathan was saying about listening and liking, and if you like it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not because of an ego trip that we want a zillion viewers or any big thing. you know you guys all know we don't get anything from this, but we actually think people would like to hear us, not because maybe of our our, our great insight and our great wisdom, although there's a little bit there certainly on Jonathan's side, but <laughs> we like the idea that we're normal people. Talking and we're not shouting, we're 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 not cursing, we're not, we're not making up stuff just to get in a phony argument about any ridiculous thing. And that that's most of the shows nowadays, whether whether it's you know, Colin Coward or or Skip or or Stephen A. Smith, these guys, I mean, you know, maybe if you knew them personally, they might be interesting, nice, normal people, but boy, their personas are just what I don't want to do. And I'm not interested in arguing about things with people. I've got an opinion. There's room for more than one opinion. So anyways, but we're going to kind of stay in the same thing we were last last time. Not, not exactly the same, but a little bit. And I was thinking, and Jonathan was thinking along with me, which is, you know, how did we end up here? How did we end up with the NFL as just such a, a monster business model that, that is is bizarre? And I'll just give you, I, I did a little research, not too much because I like just talking, but When I watched, when I was growing up, as you guys know, I was a big Rams fan. And uh, a couple of things. One, the Rams played the Coliseum. The Coliseum held over 90,000 people. And the NFL had a rule that if you couldn't sell out your home stadium, the games were blacked out. And the Rams, although they had a lot of fans, you know, they had 70,000, 80,000. They did not sell out the Coliseum. I mean, no one sells out the Coliseum. It's just too big. So consequently, home games are always blacked out. And that really bothered the owners. Well, anyways... When, when the Frontier is sold, and, and I'll jump up to 2010, my understanding is the Rams were bought in 2010 for a roughly seven to $750 million. million. And um, my understanding is now they're worth close to $7 billion. So it's just, it's just crazy. And the question we want to discuss a little bit today is um, how that happened. How did how did the NFL get so freaking popular that these people are just like printing money? And I've got a few ideas. I, I I think before we go to why it got so popular, I think we have to kind of establish that, yeah. By by the mid-70s, football had taken over baseball. Baseball is no longer America's sport. Football is America's sport. And it just kept going on. And I think as we talked about last time, Monday night football brought TV to the masses, not just the football craze masses, but prime time, prime time network masses, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you think about why football is so popular, and not just the popularity, but why the business model works so well, it, it's it's kind of intriguing. And and one thing that that I kind of stuck on and and it just hit me was how much there of kind of the maybe not so greatest characteristics of our society football emulates and you know football is a violent game it's 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 not a contact sport it's a collision sport i mean you know, there are contact sports where people bump into each other and they get knocked down no football is is vicious and i think we just have to be realistic that our society is a pretty violent society we like that stuff we like we like the idea of hands-on and it appeals to people the other thing about it is is it it's it's not fast in the sense that basketball or hockey or even soccer is fast because those are kind of continuous. Football is ponderous and slow until there's a burst of these major actions. So I, I think the I think the violence appeals to a lot of people in our society. I mean, it appeals to me. I, I I don't want to watch it firsthand, but I might watch a game. But, you know, when when. I mean, I, I don't know if you've noticed it's going off in a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, there are a lot more instances where the cameras do not show the injuries again. I mean, I remember the first time that happened, Lawrence Taylor broke, Joe Theismann's leg, and there's like, we're not going to show this to you again. And now it's 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 maybe not a weekly thing, but every couple of weeks there's a hard hit, and they say, yeah, we're not going to show this because the guy's leg moved too far the other way or the guy's head hit so hard. So I, I, I think, what do you think about that, Jonathan? You think we're a violent society?
0: I think... Well, you look at how MN, MMA has surpassed boxing. Boxing in the 70s, man, I'm trying to think, was, you know, of course, football of the major sports reigned supreme. So, like you mentioned, started to reign supreme in the 70s. But I might argue that boxing as a single event, If you look at the, you know, the original pay-per-view, the original satellite numbers, the original, you know, Hagler and Leonard, that might have been the most, the most popular, I would imagine. So, you know, to say that we're more or less today, I don't know if it's changed. Maybe it's just yes. The short answer there might be just yes.
1: Yeah, people like that. And you're right, because I remember in the, I remember in the 70s, um, Things it was either the late seventies, early eighties. The big deal was um, Leonard Duran, and that was one of the first pay per views I remember that that people I knew went to places. And interestingly enough, there was a Ram, a, a guard named Dennis Hera, Hercules Hera from West Virginia, and he was a starting guard. He and Tom Mack were the guards, and uh, you know he was the rookie, and Tom Mack was the old grizzled veteran from Michigan. And Dennis Hera bought a bar in Long Beach on Second Street called Legends. It was one of the it was the the first sports bar I'd ever heard of. I mean, they had big screens everywhere. But I remember when they they had a Leonard Duran viewing party, and it was you know it was, you could not get in. It was packed, and it you know cost a lot of money to get in. And yeah, you're right. People were crazed about those fights. And uh, I, I think you know I I said I said last week that um, you know Rune Arledge and Rizal really had insight and hutzpah and smarts. Yeah, I mean, whoever tapped into, whether it's Paul Tagliabue or, or Jerry Jones or whatever, yeah, they they realize that that the average American, which I, I consider myself one, you know, likes to rough it up and and doesn't mind seeing, you know, people knocked out. I, I don't want to see anyone taken to the hospital or killed, but you know, a good a good collision or a good boxing match is, is fun. I will say, just as a disclaimer, I, I can't do MMA. I mean, to me that's like a street fight. I, I I'm not one of those people where they saw a fight, the first thing they do is they take out their camera and film it. I have a we have a good friend who actually listens to the show. So I'll give him a shout-out, John Miller, who tells me at his junior high school, you know, there's fights almost every day. And as soon as the fists start flying, the cameras come out, and everyone just that that's that's what we do as a society. So I'm not there with MMA, but I get that that it, it's right, it's good to see a physical game. And I'm impressed with these guys. I just read an article today about Adrian Peterson, you know, all day and A M P M, and you know he was a stud he was a man among men he was larger than life and he ran up the middle and guys bounced off him and it was it was fun to watch it's like wow this guy is is you know it's like you know watching john wayne in the movies and it's like wow this guy is a superhero
0: so i want to pull back just a little bit on how these things became big because i i think you're right i think there is this level of shock and awe, the level of physicality that a lot of people talk about, but pulling back just a little bit, as far as the marketing visionaries, like you're talking about by, by Rune Arledge and and Roselle and, and those guys, but the advent of cable television, then going into satellite and creating access to these different communities, to be able to watch and consume a lot of other areas and to watch out of market and to watch, oh, I don't live in Boston anymore. I want to watch the Celtics. I want to watch the Red Sox. I want to watch the Patriots, but I live in insert place here. Now I can watch it. And then just how television has kind of changed. You know, it started off, you know, MTV, I think, is probably the advent of the reality television when they created real world. And it, those are very inexpensive to put together. You don't have writers. Well, maybe you do, but you know, it's not the same level as scripted television. And how we consume TV. And so now today everything's on demand. You can get it whenever you want, but the one thing that's not sports. And so because of that, there's a scarcity of viewing eyes or ability to get eyes on a specific thing, which creates dollars, which creates demand. And I think these guys tapped into it, and I'm not going to run through it all right this moment, but I mean, you just have a lot of data that kind of supports you know, the theory that it. I think it's the TV. I think the TV contracts and the TV market and... Hey, if I have an event on Monday night football, Sunday night football, during the weekend on Sunday, your butt is in your couch, your barking lounger, whatever it is, and I've got you. And you're not coming off of that TV for hours.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't think you can deny television's impact and, and the the ability to watch these things. But I, I think an uh, uh, interesting question is, why football? I mean, you know, why not baseball or basketball? Obviously, hockey, hockey's not an American sport. I mean, I know the teams are all basically North America, but it'll always be a Canadian sport in my mind. And I I love hockey, but I'm not gonna watch that much of it. But, you know, I mean, baseball in the sixties, baseball was the game, the national pastime, it was the deal. And then it lost lost a lot of interest and football caught up. Basketball's had, you know, a, a remarkable renaissance and, and basketball's, you know, very popular and and conceivably could be more popular worldwide because a lot of these places where they're obviously not going to field a a pro football team, they can field a pro basketball team. You know so basketball might be bigger in in South America and Asia and other places as opposed to pro football. But I just think it's interesting why why football has caught on like that. And I mean, I, I think there I think there are a couple couple reasons. and one of them is, is and this I want to throw out to you, and I know we don't usually go heavy on our topics or anything, but it struck me that when football got popular, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, all the quarterbacks, with the exception of Doug Williams, Randall Cunningham, and a few other guys were white, and that was the face of football. And the face of football was always Bradshaw or Staubach or whomever, you know, when, when I was growing up. And uh, I think that appealed to a lot of people, certainly in the 70s and the 80s. The buzz around, you know, entertainmentville was that the NBA is is far too black. And, you know, they always had to have a couple of white guys around, et cetera, et cetera. I I think as a society, we've come a long way. So I don't think the racism part is as big. But I think football has played itself kind of perfectly. That's hitting all the right angles to to make this. Bigger and bigger and bigger because yet yeah, you can't deny how big football is. I was just I was just perusing something. The San Francisco 49ers have 26 assistant coaches. I mean, can you imagine that that that's amazing? So you've got this business model where there's like, let's say, I, I think there's about a thousand or eleven hundred guys in the NFL. Every year, there's you know, hundreds of guys from college trying to make the team, and you've got this built-in workforce. So I think that goes a long ways to why they're so popular, because it's kind of the American dream, you know, the American dream, or it used to be the American dream is, is anyone could do anything. And, you know, not, not everyone can go to Harvard and not everyone can go to MIT and not everyone can get an MBA. But, you know, if you, if you got what it takes, you can, you can play ball. And so from, from the worst, worst neighborhood where you are, if you're good enough at, at hooping or, or footballing, you can make it and you can make it to where you have a lifestyle that most people just dream about. And I think between the American dream, and I'm not not really big on, you know, American exceptionalism, but I do think our work ethic is is phenomenal, and people used to really want to work. So these guys are willing to get to the weight room at five in the morning, and then you know they've got the story of I think it was Walter Payton at some hill in Mississippi. He ran up, and Jerry Rice used to you know catch bricks from his father to get his hands, and things like that. And it, it it builds into the Horatio Alger myth of you can do it. So, yeah, if you're willing to go for it and put your butt in the line every day, you can become a star. And I think that appeals to a lot of people. I mean, back in the day, you know, they'd go to Hollywood Boulevard and, and go to go to the drugstore and try and get Schwab's drugstore and try and get noticed by an agent. Now it's you work your butt off in the weight room and, and sprinting and you excel in high school. And you get to a college and you get to university and you excel and then you you make the pros. And it's, it's it's the American dream. Does that make sense?
0: Well, what you're touching on is kind of where I was kind of going and leaning into anyhow, which is that marketing. I mean, you mentioned it. You, you called it out. Roselle, right? These were admin. These guys were marketing guys. These guys were selling a product or products to the American public. And everything that you just described – is exactly that, and we were sold on these great kind of stories, right? Those stories is what sold it. And then I think why, when you say why not baseball and why not basketball, right? It's just too many games. Yeah. The individual, the individual drama bet- from game to game. I mean, not saying that it doesn't exist. I mean, the while we were recording this just the other day, the Warriors um, ended up having a very, you know, thrilling comeback tie the game at the end with a Steph Curry step back three and they win in overtime, right? Very thrilling. But single single use, single story, you know, it's only 20 some games into the season. Not that exciting. You only have 16 games or now 17 games in a regular season. So losing a game has a much significant higher impact on, you know, the storyline and the drama that's created. And then within that, I think that's where football kind of passed up, right? You didn't get the stories. Major League Baseball has done a terrible job of marketing their players and their people. And the guy who probably did it the best would be someone like Vin Scully, where Vin Scully would sit there and tell you, you know, in between pitches. Sergio Romo. He's from here. And, you know, he's from an LA, you know, he's a brawly guy and he grew up here and he did. And you're like, wow, that's really cool. Like, Hey, here's a guy that comes from, you know, a less than, you know, socioeconomic kind of family worked his way up, you know, went to school, worked hard, he's undersized and he can make the major leagues. But, the only person who hears that is a person who's listening to you know 570 local LA and hear that on the radio. Otherwise, you have no idea who Sergio Romo is. And I would argue Mike Trout could probably walk down most streets in America. Nobody has any idea who that is. Now they hear Mike Trout. Oh, OK, I know who that guy is. But they don't recognize him. And so you just described it. That drama, you know, the whole uh, – remember – Refrigerator Perry in the 85 Super Bowl, and they were showing him as a, you know, he and his family, bricklayer and all this kind of stuff. And like you said, it's it's that story, it's the drama, it's the American dream. And I'm not trying to be cynical or say that it's bad in any way, shape or form. That That's not my point, but I just think they did. The NFL just did a really good job of figuring out and being able to talk about it. And then we could talk about some of the cynical things that I think that ended up happening. But before I just throw it back over to you, I mean, just to give you an idea, in 1995, the average value of an NFL team was $160 million. 1995. 1994 was the first year of NFL Sunday Ticket. So, DirecTV had the exclusive rights to broadcast games out of market. They were paying $25 million a year for that package, 1994. In 2014, DirecTV renewed that contract at $1.5 billion per year. In 2004, so 1995, teams were worth $160 million on average. Nine years later, the average was $733 million. So in 1994, again, so 10 years prior, DirecTV's paying $25 million a year. 20 years later, they're paying $1.5 billion. Today, the average team is worth just over $5 billion, and YouTube just bought out that contract $2 billion a year. That is for the out of market. That does not include the ABC, the ESPN, the CBS, the NBC, and the Fox contracts. That's just the Sunday ticket.
1: Well, I, I think to to heighten your point, not that it needs to be heightened, but I mean, you know, right now, the, the combine is televised. I mean, the combine didn't start until I think Maybe 2000, late 1990s. Before that, teams would just fly guys in if they wanted to. So they would say, hey, you know, you're a tight end at Stanford. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why the Rams always drafted guys from California. I mean, they were not going to fly someone in from Minnesota or for Penn State. They would fly the, the, tight, the, the tight end from Stanford or, or the outside linebacker from Cal. They probably wouldn't even fly them. They'd probably drive them in. And they'd get them to Blair Field or wherever it was. And they'd run through some drills. They know who to draft. Now, I mean, now it's it is. It, I mean, talk about minutia. I mean, they get all this medical information on these guys. I mean, it's kind of spooky. And this reminds me. I, I know I have a tendency to digress, but I like digressing. I read a story that when Bill Walton was on the Trailblazers as a rookie, they they were coming up then with this idea that you would um, do this handwriting analysis, and they would uh, they would draw some conclusions about your personality. And he's like. Absolutely not. I'm not. I'm not doing anything like that. You know, I'm gonna play basketball. If you don't like it, too bad. And I think it's kind of weird. I mean, having I've I've just. I think some of you know that I've had some medical issues. I've been spending a fair amount of time with doctors and stuff. And I take HIPAA seriously. And I don't want everyone looking at my stuff. But you go to the combine, and, and they, you know, they, they examine you to the nth degree, and it's all open. Every NFL team has access to it, and it's a deal. So. I, I I don't think there's any debating the numbers. I mean, I I, I think this is one of those times when the, the analytics and the statistics just prove the obvious. The NFL is a beast. The NFL is a business model that can't hardly be replicated. Maybe, you know, Berkshire Hathaway or something. I mean, just it just it keeps going up and up and up and up. A I, I, good question, which we might get to later in the show, is, you know, is the greed going to kill it all? Is, is, is it going to come to an end one day? But maybe, maybe not. But... I just think it's interesting as to why it got so popular, and and you know I I think obviously television is is a huge part of that, but you know you can you can put a lot of things on TV, and people aren't going to watch them. What I think the NFL has done expertly is command the drama. A good NFL game is dramatic. A good NFL game is really fun to watch and they give you their entertainment. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have the stats at my fingertips, but it seems when I watch a good game, you know, either the Sunday night game or just a good game on Sunday, it comes down to the last possession. I mean, like basically who's got the ball last and you know, they're either down by three or down by four. So that means either have to field goal to tie or or touchdown to win. And, uh, And it comes down and oftentimes it comes down to the, the game is in doubt with a minute to go. And that, you know, the players are exhausted. I know they don't look exhausted, but they are exhausted. You can't, you know, sprint down the field for a pass, you know, 50 times a game and not be tired. The linemen have the crap beat out of them, and they're playing their hearts out. And and to me, that that's that's the secret to the NFL. The NFL has convinced these guys to basically, you know, if you if you think about the the junior Seals or the Dave Dursons or whatever, you know, to put their lives on the line, to have repeated. Brutal contact to, to win a game, but to do it in a way that makes it entertaining. It it it's it's mind-boggling. It really is. I remember a game, and this is this is a few years back. So I always liked Ricky Williams, the the running back from Texas, even though he never he never did what they thought he was. But his last couple of years were the Ravens, and he was very good. And I remember the Ravens were playing some in the playoffs, and they pitched the ball to Ricky, maybe a short pass, and they need like four yards for first down. And he was up against some other guys another 30 year old linebacker and it was just like they each put their heads down and ran each other as hard as they could ricky got the first down and i was thinking wow any normal human being after that hit would not get up and they they would they would have to be taken off by the stretcher these guys both popped up jogged back to the huddle and i was like wow how did the nfl convince these guys to really you know go for it and knowing that you know i mean you're on a team where the average the average career lifespan is you know three or four years. So your teammates are are not going to make it. There there's always the outliers, a few guys who who play ten years, twelve years, fifteen years. But you know how do the NFL convince people to give up the prime of their life and 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 have serious physical consequences for this short fleeted glory? That 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 gives all of us this great entertainment, and then that to me is that to me is the secret to the NFL. It it is it is a fun fun game to watch. An NFL playoff game, in my mind, is the most fun game to watch.
0: I don't disagree in any way, shape, or form, and I've told you many times, and I've said it on this you know podcast before, and on the extra time show that you know my first love was always football and will always be football, and how did they do it? It goes back to last week's discussion. You have someone like Dandy Don, you know, cheerleading and getting super excited and getting young people excited. I think the marketing, as we've discussed already just a little bit, but there's there's very key pieces that I would say where they were very good. So, number one, and I think this goes back. I I remember it back in the late 70s and it goes on even still today. But. And again, I don't want this to sound cynical. It's going to sound cynical. I don't mean it to be cynical. But if you look at the old robber barons of the turn of the century from the Industrial Revolution, one of the things that they did to make themselves look better was get involved in public works, get involved with charity. And very early, the NFL aligned themselves with the United Way and you would get inundated with you know, the NFL and their partnership with the United Way. And I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to say that, you know, equivocating between the two, but it's a way to say, Hey, I've got this violent sport, but man, we support the community. We support this nonprofit. We're helping them out. They're our partner. We have man of the year. So that's one way. The other piece of it, and this is where, you know, I do believe this and I do say this very cynically was Kind of the the pulling at the heartstrings of of nationalism, and so for those that don't know, I served in the U.S. Navy from 1990 to 1996. I did several years of technical school, or a couple of years of technical school, and I spent over four years on a uh, nuclear powered fast attack submarine based out of Point Loma, California, and so technically I was part of, you know, desert storm, desert strike, whatever, you know, version you want to call it. I was never on any kind of active duty. I don't claim that I was or wasn't. I was just in the military during that time. And I can tell you that the kind of marketing and messaging and the support that the NFL was putting out at that time for our military, that's when I really started to see you know, infiltrating, kind of becoming this nationalism, nationalist kind of thing. Like, oh, you know, America's strong. We support our military. Watch the NFL. So this goes, you know, from that 90 to 96. And then, of course, you know, we had the tragic events of 9-11 and baseball. You know, I'm not trying to say that they were trying to capitalize on it because it was in New York. You had the New York teams that were playing um, and you had for those that that don't remember the raising of the flag that was on the twin, t- one of the towers that was raised at the, one of the, uh, I think game one of the Mets and Yankees world series. So there was a lot of, you know, emotion that was there and a lot of people that were supporting it, but the NFL, you know, that's when they really started, you know, again, leaning into that military, leaning into the nationalism we of course know about the deal that the NFL ended up making with the U- U.S. Army, where they paid them over five million dollars to, you know, promote the army and their, you know, their commercials. For lack of a better way of saying it, right? They weren't like free advertisement. And so, when you look at the average American, hey, you know, it's not baseball, apple pie, and mom, and, and mom anymore. It's the NFL. America's great, nationalism's great, you know, we're the number 1, and I think that's what drove it. And then you have the drama, right? Again, fewer games, higher stakes. We do a good job of marketing our people and talking about our people. And then what came out of it, and you can say which came first, the chicken or the egg, but the money. 1990 the total the total contract was 3.6 billion dollars for the NFL. That's the total contract. 3.6 million dollars for four years, 900 million a year. 1990. Today, there's a 10-year contract for 110 billion dollars. 10. It's over 10 billion dollars a year is the contract so the money followed or the money drove it i you know you can argue one way or the other which came first and so now the consumerism and all that kind of stuff and nfl did a good job of getting more eyes okay buffalo plays games in canada oh we're gonna go now start playing games in london oh we're gonna go start playing games in germany The NBA tried it. They started doing the stuff with with China, and then everybody's like, wait a minute. China's still got some problems here, friends. Uh, We want to back off on that a little bit, and we've had that kerfuffle, and that's a whole different topic. But they expanded it, and then this year, the ultimate marketing piece fell right in their lap. The blooming uh, relationship between Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey – and now we get this amazing global sensation, and she's an NFL fan. And so, if I'm a Taylor Swift fan, I want to be an NFL fan too. And that was free. So yeah,
1: that's that's that was a biggie. There's no question about it. And that that brings me to to two points. First of all, I'll make a point, and then I'm going to throw you a curveball and, and ask you a question that there's no right or wrong answer to. But I, I'm curious as to your thoughts. So. Since this is generations, you know, when I went to games, and I, I think I've told you guys, my dad used to take me you to know, maybe maybe one Ram game a year, a couple SC games, and then we'd see the basketball and baseball. But, you know, back in the 70s, people did not wear jerseys to games. <laughs> they just didn't. Back in the 80s, people did not wear jerseys to the games. There'd be a few guys. I mean, it was a big deal. Like, oh, the, the Steelers, terrible towel. But no, I mean, there are not guys with Franco Harris jerseys all in the stadium. If you look at a game today, and, and I'm just, you know, since I don't go to games now I watch them on on TV, you know, it seems to me like, I don't know, maybe 30 to 40% of the people in the stands are wearing jerseys. And let me tell you, friends, those jerseys ain't cheap. They're expensive. I mean, they're so expensive, I wouldn't buy one. I mean, I, I not only would I be kind of embarrassed to walk around town with, a you know, a, a Marcel Dion King's jersey or something, but... I'm not gonna spend 150 bucks on a jersey if, if that's what they go for. But the the marketing, the merchandising, whoever thought of that is a genius. But here's the curveball. So get your get your game face on. We're not gonna put you as as Jonathan anymore. We're gonna make you into let's say Robert Kraft or Jerry Jones or Stan Cornicky. So you have a franchise that's worth, let's say, seven billion dollars. Do you sell it? I mean, 10 years from now, I don't think as we were worth $70 billion, I think there's a chance, and it might not be a big chance, but, you know, all the financial people I talked to talk about risk and reward, and, you know, there's a chance that enough guys get hurt, people stop watching football, and I read an article, I believe it was in the New York Times, about the amount of people that are stopping playing high school tackle football because of too many injuries, so... What do you do? You're an owner. You're you're sitting high. I mean, it's like being it's like being at the blackjack table. So I can I can relate to gambling since I have the degenerate gambling uh, tendencies. I, I've been very good at subduing. But you're at the, you're at the table, and you've got ten thousand bucks in chips in front of you. Okay, do you you start putting? Do you start raising your bets more? Or do you take those ten thousand dollars and walk away? Now, obviously, with the pros, you have zero 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 because we're talking billions. <clears throat> but it's the same concept. What do you do for the owner? Do you, do you look to sell and, and have a soft landing? Obviously the NFL is not going to go away this year, or next year, but 10 years, what do you think?
0: So I'm actually glad that you asked me this question. I wasn't expecting you to ask me this question, but I have data that will support my answer. And I'm glad you picked the guys that you picked. Cause you picked Kroenke, you, you picked Kraft, you picked, you picked Jones. So this is a September 2023, so just a few months ago, article from Sportico. And it reports that the total EBITDA, so that's earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization. So that is um basically, for the lack of a better way of thinking of it, think of it as gross profit. Um well, I'm
1: I'm I'm I'm, re- I'm having flashbacks to war and stuff of this. You're you're talking way over me. So okay. So you're talking about what they make.
0: Yeah, so this is just you know gross gross dollars for the entirety of the NFL, four point four billion dollars is what was made after you know paying salaries and, and most most of the stuff. The worst team or the lowest team EBITDA was the Bills at sixty five million dollars. Now to put that into context. For those that are familiar with the English Premier League, the English Premier League is one of the most lucrative sports leagues in the world and has teams that are some of the most high profile and the most watched. And they have players that make significant amounts more than even the highest paid quarterbacks in the NFL, the highest EBITDA of any English Premier League team this past season was the Manchester City, which just came off of winning the treble. So there's three major tournaments that they won. They were at fifty nine million. Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys, number one, four hundred sixty million dollars in EBITDA this past season. That exceeds the amount that he paid for the team And with the average NFL team currently at around five billion dollars, it is estimated that Dallas is probably double or more than that number so worth 10 billion. So you say what what do you do? you're one of those guys you're in the catbird seat and I think you have nothing to lose. I'm one of them. I'm riding it out because, Even if I were to lose half of whatever the value of my team is today, it is still an order of magnitude or more than what I paid for the team. And then you get into the situation like you did with the Broncos just this past season or two where they had to sell the team because, you know, just the generational tax and things like that and and the planning that you need to make and the complication of the finances around you know you have a patriarch or matriarch that has to pass something down to the family super super complicated and it can be very very expensive and if you don't do your estate planning properly so you know I'm Jerry Jones I think he's probably what late 70s early 80s now You're, I'm riding it ride it out because I've got nothing to lose I'm in the catbird seat, and. If you were to say, all right, well, what if you take one of these other guys? You're Mark Davis. Even as bad as the Raiders are, they are the number nine most profitable team at $160 million this past season. I think you're riding it out. And I don't look at I read the article that you were just you were describing. That's just from the other day. And I don't think that actually puts me off because now. You, one might say, okay, you have a smaller pool of players and they're going to be w- not as good. They're going to go play baseball. They're going to go play f- uh, basketball or something else. I disagree. I think you're going to have a higher caliber level of, of players. It's going to go the opposite direction. And the play is just going to get better. And you're going to have a more exclusive group of people. And I, I think I'm riding it.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's interesting. I, I assume all the NFL owners are as risk risk taking as you are. But, you know, I mean, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that in 10 years there's no football. Uh, I, I do think it's beyond the realm of possibility there's no basketball or baseball. Football has that that wild card, no pun intended, of of unintended consequences with the violence. And they there, you know, I, I think there's a reason why they're, they're doing such a good job on on trying to cut down. That, now the latest one is some, you know, kind of horse collar tackle or something like that. But, you know, I, I think I think fans are less concerned with with the knees as they are with the necks. And I tell you, you know, I mean, you, you would have thought, I mean, when Daryl Stingley got paralyzed, you know, it was a big deal and the NFL was very uptight about it. Um, you know, they haven't really done a lot. I mean, they, they protect guys to an extent, but someone goes over the middle, and you know, if they're gonna get hit, they're gonna take a hit and take the hit the wrong way, they they will end up not playing again ever. And if they take hit the real wrong way, they they might pass away. And the question I have is, you know, is there anything that could happen in, in a pro football game that would turn the stomachs of people and have them stop watching? On another note, I mean there there was um there's a famous boxing match, I think, in the early 60s. This young guy named Davy Moore got uh, got beat to death and he died in the ring. Bob Dylan wrote a song about it, who killed Davy Moore. And you know, they they bitched it the ref, the ref maybe should have stopped it a few punches earlier, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality was there was a push to to ban boxing. There's like, yeah, this is not right. You know, we, we don't want people beating each other to death in front of each other. It's not right. And and boxing was really uptight for a, a long period of time. And of course, you know, it just goes to show that the the arc the moral arc of the universe as Martin Luther King put maybe it's not as uh, maybe he was a little too optimistic because now we're certainly more far more bloodthirsty than we were back then. And and you know, you gone from boxing with guys having eight ounce gloves on their hands to to you know martial arts fighting where you can kick some in the head, et cetera, et cetera. So seemingly a boxer being beaten and and not not expiring and dying didn't change, didn't really move the needle Football could it happen? I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I I don't know. I I like watching the games. I know my friends like watching the games, but I I do think that the violence. I I, I think there's a I think there's a gray area that that they've got to tiptoe around. And I will say the the NFL is doing a very good job on that. I mean, kind of switching gears to baseball. Baseball sped up the game. They saw an issue. They took care of it, and the game got a lot more popular. Football, they're, 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 you know, you can't take the collisions away, but you can try and take the opportunities where people could actually die away. And, you know, I mean, no one hits quarterbacks anymore. I mean, you know, quarterbacks get sacked very gingerly. And, you know, I know, you know, the old players say, oh, I mean, someone recently said, oh, put a skirt on them, and they got in trouble because it was a, you know, sexist remark. But it's true. The the quarterbacks don't get smashed like they used to. And, and I think that's a good thing. I think that you, no one wants to see or may, maybe – Man, they do want to see, but no one really wants to see Aaron Rodgers, you know, sandwiched with two guys and lay there bleeding, and you know they come for the stretcher and he's laying there and he gets wheeled off and no one knows what happens. And then they think that would be distasteful. So I think there's a chance football could could get a little too big for its own britches and be a problem. But I do think the guys on it on the competition committee, otherwise they see and 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 your numbers just prove the point. I mean, you're making let's just say the little guys are making 60000000 million. Let's just say, let's just take a, a median number, $100 million. Yeah, you will want to make sure that that stays. And you say, okay, so we're going to throw a penalty flag if someone leads with their head. Okay, I mean, you know, targeting. Who knew about targeting five years ago? Nobody. No one understood it. I mean, Ronnie Lott would have had 10 targeting penalties a game. Lawrence Taylor said he wouldn't throw it Lawrence Taylor said, at the end of the season, he would have owed them money because that's how he played. He played very hard, and they would have kept finding him and finding him. But they're smart, and they're figuring out. So maybe your numbers um, actually prove the point that, yeah, the NFL is smart enough to know that there's this there's this existential threat out there of of fans being turned off, and they're going to take steps to make sure that doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, too big to fail. And then getting the female, like, if I can get, I have this whole totally untapped audience in the female audience and if and if i can get a phenomena you know if i can get this zeitgeist of taylor swift bringing them in i mean that's just a huge boon and here's here's where here's where the threat is in 1993 you had the fledgling fox network paid 1.58 billion to pull the nfc rights away from cbs which was a massive deal if you remember and again, we're talking generations, so I know you remember, but for our audiences, some may forgot or don't know. So in 1993, the contract that CBS had, they were paying the NFL 290 million dollars annually. Fox said, eh, and they just blew it up, and this is where it started. They blew it up and they said, all right, we're going to give you 1.58 billion, so roughly 400 million. So they were going to pay 30 over 30% more annually for the same contract and here's what the fallout was it was so bad that CBS lost affiliates that they actually either switched to Fox or left CBS altogether because of that contract and for those that aren't familiar with live television you know the the broadcasting networks don't really own You know, they might own their New York affiliate or they might own their L.A. affiliate. But outside of that, in every other market, for the most part, are owned by these independent, you know, television companies, for lack of way of saying it. And then their affiliate, you know, so I get to be CBS, NBC, ABC, whatever it is. I pay a fee for that and I get access to all the programming and all those different types of things. So when you're losing affiliates. That means you're losing ad revenue. That means you're losing eyes. I mean, that was a huge deal in 1993. And because of that, in 1998, that's what CBS said. All right, NBC, we're going to stick a stake in your heart. And ABC at that point for six decades had some form of major sport championship that they aired, and it would be the first time that they would not. Because CBS would pay five hundred billion, so they would say, "All right, we lost. We were paying two ninety. Fox came in, is paying four hundred. Five years later, we're going to jump up. We're going to go another twenty five percent more. It's too big to fail. So when you talk about you know ten years as NFL, I don't think so. They're going to change it. They're going to add a wrinkle. I think they do look, no pun intended, downfield." To see what's coming and try to address any of these issues, bringing more women in. I mean, they've been trying to appeal to the female viewer for a long time. The violence. Even with the rules today, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I was reading some statistics. I don't think there's a quarterback in the NFL that's played 100 percent of his snaps for every team this year. Like everyone has at least come off the field at least at some point this year and, of course, some more than others. And you said Aaron Rodgers, and I know you said that unironically because Aaron Rodgers, outside of the very first game, hasn't played at all this year. And he just, I guess, announced that he is going to set out the balance of the year, even though that he was trying to, I guess, think that he's going to come back. But I think it's too big to fail. And other than capitalism failing, the United States failing, which I'm not suggesting that that's a real possibility, but outside of that, I think the NFL is, is too big. And, you know, we're seeing games in Berlin, we're seeing games that are going to be going further into Europe. I suspect, I think I mentioned this on a a broadcast before, we're going to have a whole division that's Europe that's going to play each other and then play here. It's just going to expand and get bigger, and I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think of all the institutions in the United States, I think they are uh, more solid than the Federal Reserve. How about that?
1: That's pretty solid. Um, you know, what's interesting—the the kind of the thing we haven't touched on—while um, you're while you're saying these these statistics, they're pretty mind-boggling how much the TV people pay. But you know, I mean. It's still about, like like uh, they used to say in the movie theaters, it's still about putting asses in the seats. And, you know, somewhere along the line, they had to convince people to pay these exorbitant amounts of money to watch the games. And right now, I know I know this is kind of a broken record thing with me, but, you know, I'm not paying. I mean, I, I know I pay for TV, but I'm, I'm not paying extra to watch the, the Rams play the Packers or the Patriots play whomever. I'm just not going to do that. And I know that's coming down the pike, and I, I will gracefully bow out and give my news or my junkie stuff some other way. But you know, attendance is up. You know, the NFL still averages, I think, close to seventy thousand folks a game. Um, you know they've and, and tickets are not cheap. So this game has gotten bigger. that the TVs pay more. The players get paid more. Like we said, you know back in the back in the early generation I'm talking about. Very common for NFL guys to have second jobs during the offseason. They work for car dealerships. They sold beer truck. They 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 drove beer trucks. They sold insurance, whatever. You know, the salaries have gone up. Everything's gone up. So salaries have gone up. Profits have gone up. TV's gone up. But the, the ingredient that we're all talking about is the average person, whether it's your sister in Clovis or not, is willing to participate, participate by buying jerseys. Participate by watching and participate by one or two times a year going to the stadium and buying a, a ticket at some crazy price and watching a game. And that is that is the magic. They they have that. And then we haven't even talked about this whole work base where, you know, every year they have a thousand applicants for, you know, 100 jobs. And it, it I mean, this is why I think one of the reasons why I think it's so successful, man, it's so Darwin, it's survival of the fittest. That that's what you're talking about. I know, I know Jack Welch or 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 Warren Buffett and these guys clawed their way to the top and and you know they've 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 made huge sums of money. Well, we're not all like that, but you know, these other guys have done the same thing. And every year, every year without fail, there is some guy no one has ever heard of, whether he's from the South or the Midwest or wherever who played on an average college team that got very, I mean, look at Brock Purdy, right? I mean, you know, the last guy drafted Mr. Irrelevant, and now he's probably going to win the MVP for the NFL this year, and he deserves it. So that aspect of, of rags to riches, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, you got whatever whatever you takes to survive, to succeed, you do. That's what it is. And that, that part, Still rings true and it touches a nerve with everyone I know. And it's a fantasy. It's, 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 I think it's a very typical male fantasy of saying, God, you know, if I could just, you know, get to that weight room a little, little earlier and, and, you know, run 40s every day, I, I could be on the field. And and it's endearing. But I don't know. I, I'm not as confident as you that 10 years from now the NFL will be there. But, you know, I, I do understand a little bit about economics. And I guess you're right. They're completely playing with house money every year they win win every year they make more money than they paid for their team so they like it and you know let's let's not be totally naive NFL owners are their own you know are are celebrities in their own right you know i mean believe me back in back in my generation i don't think people even knew who owned the rams or the packers well the packers were owned by i guess a consortium of fans but you know who who owned the cowboys or who owned the 49ers they didn't know these things and now these guys are celebrities, and and they and they walk down the street, everyone knows them, and they they like that. So interesting. I mean, like I say, to me, it's very interesting. You can't really argue that the NFL isn't as popular, as big as it is. Why that is, I don't know. But you know, from a business model, and you could speak more to this than I could. It, it's somewhat amazing how how it's gotten so so lucrative, and that's for everyone involved, except the fan. It's got a lucrative for the players. It's got a lucrative for the agents. It's got a lucrative for the coaches. It's certainly got a lucrative for the owners. It's got a lucrative for the TV stations. Everyone wins, and and we all like watching the games. So I guess it's a win-win, happy, happy situation. I don't know. It's kind of funny.
0: Yeah, and the the final thought that I will say is, and we didn't really touch on this yet, and it's not necessarily, you know, the most biggest point of this discussion, but. You know, the NFL is one of those is the one league where, yeah, you, you own the team and it's for ego and these other things. But it's a money making deal. You can own a baseball team. You can own an NBA team, depending on which team you have. And you're losing money and, and you're keeping that team because you happen to be a billionaire or, or several hundred millionaire. And, you know, it's ego. It's like oh I get to I get to own a team and you know it's my plaything and it's my toy I'm Paul Allen I'm Mark Cuban I'm you know Mickey Arison whatever and they they run those teams like a very tight ship because the profitability there is pretty tight and you know their contracts are good but they're not nearly as lucra- lucrative as the NFL and so you take a a Mark Davis who in and of himself. He's one of the least wealthy NFL owners, but he is the ninth most profitable team. So he's actually able to generate, you know, this is, hey, that could be my daytime job. I can keep this going. Where the other ones are kind of like hobbies. And these guys are generating, you know, incredible amounts of wealth just with these teams. And you're not necessarily doing that with some of the other sports leagues. And so there's the other kind of impetus, if you will, on these owners to make sure hey, we got a good thing. We want to keep it going. And, you know, we're, we're kind of into time, but I'll just put out you kind of said middling is somewhere in that 100 million range. Well, you're right. Number 15 is Kansas City at 119 million. Number 16 is Minnesota with 116. And number 17 are the New York Jets at 114 million. So, you're north of 100 million dollars in, in basically gross profits, you know, over this last year, and again these numbers just keep growing, and right now there's no end in sight. So I think that's where, you know, it's it's if you want to boil it down, I think it was the marketing that they did. Of course, the product's good. I mean, I'm not going to debate the product. The product, and then part of that is that drama the athleticism, the stories behind the players. And then, you know, tapping into that American dream, tapping into nationalism, tapping into overcoming, you know, being the underdog and and becoming the person at the top at the end of the day, the Brock Purdy's of the world, the Refrigerator Perry's. You mentioned Adrian Peterson, Ricky Williams, you know, all these different guys. I think those are all play a part of it. And um, and now that the money and the engine is is going, it's just you know to use the financial crisis of two thousand you know eight two thousand nine too big to fail.
1: Well, I'll end on this note. Uh, I love watching the NFL. I I really enjoy watching games, as I've said numerous times. But the idea that the owners of the Jets <laughs> could make hundred million dollars in a year is. Kind of turning my stomach a little bit because they've botched that organization about as poorly as you can. And it, it's funny. So, anyways, I like to end on a positive note. So, regardless of what's happening, I'm going to keep watching those games until they make me pay more money for them. And I'm going to keep rooting for the teams I like, rooting against the teams I dislike. And you know what? It's escapism. It's fun in today's society. It's a great way to spend a few hours watching a ball game. So, that's all I got. I'm Steve. Thank you guys very much for listening.
0: Hey, and I'm Jonathan, and, you know, this is going to drop before Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. For those that celebrate Christmas, we want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. For those of other faiths, happy holidays to all of you. And, again, we appreciate your listens very much. All of these episodes are evergreen, so you can listen to them the day they come out. This show comes out every Saturday at noon Pacific time, but you can listen to it. At 1201 Pacific Time on Saturday, you can listen to it on Tuesday at 8 o'clock. And that's why we like this, you know, these topics. That's why we talk about generations because, you know, these are very relevant and near and dear to our hearts. And we think about this stuff all the time, and we think you do too because you're enjoying the content. So thank you again. Like it. Subscribe. Interact with the polls. Interact with us. And thank you very much. I'm Jonathan. I'm sure you got... Your last little bit too, Steve. No, I, I think you're
1: on a good note. I'm Steve. Nice listening, to, nice talking to everyone. I hope you're listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.